You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. Good evening and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Koch and this program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. In it, I talk to someone who is a person of note and we listen to music of their choice. And I'm very happy to tell you that my guest tonight is Peter Bruce. And I'll tell you about him in a moment or he'll tell you about him himself. Good evening. Good evening, Richard. Lovely to be with you. And thank you so much for for asking me to do this. It's been um, an extremely difficult and emotional <laughs> few days putting a list together for you. The cutting floor is um, a real mess. <laughs> well, where where is the cutting floor? Tell me, tell us where you are. Right. Um, my wife, uh, Robin, and I moved to from Johannesburg to Stanford, which is a very, very small village, sort of roughly midway between Hermanus and Hans Bay. Um, not on the sea, slightly inland. We're protected from those horrible coastal winds that seem to blow constantly down here. Um, it's a very quiet, well-run uh, little village. Like all other parts of South Africa, um, uh, suffering quietly uh, under the COVID epidemic and the lockdowns, um, uh, but a very resilient little town, and we're very proud of it. We, um, you know, where where we can, we contribute to efforts to help less fortunate people than ourselves. And and uh, I think I think the town is currently making something like two thousand meals a day for people, which is quite extraordinary, given that, that in fact. Most of the houses in town are occupied sort of only at weekends or holidays. So, Stanford was um, is, is over a hundred years old. It was founded uh, as a farm originally um, by a chap who used to supply groceries to the uh, British authorities in Cape Town, um, and he was doing very well. His, his name was Sir. He became a, a, a peer. He was knighted. He became Sir Robert Stanford, and. Um, and then got himself into terrible trouble uh, because a shipload of convicts from England being sent out to Australia uh, were forced to pull into Cape Town Harbour, Table Bay. And the local population uh, didn't want anything to do with them and they wanted the ship uh, removed and to sail on and they needed desperately needed supplies and something healthy to eat. And uh, the governor, who I think was Harry Smith, turned to Robert Stanford and asked him whether he could supply from from his farm. And um, uh, there's a um, there's a there's a place not far from uh, Hans Bike or Stanford's Cove, and he used to then ferry out uh, supplies to 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 ships, which is what he did in this case, supplied the. Uh, convicts on board the Australia-bound vessel and was um, um, from then on um, uh, Cape Town turned its back on him and uh, ostracized him and he he died in terrible financial straits and uh, I think I had to go back to England and, and it was all a terrible terrible mess but he left behind him the beginnings of a, of a lovely little village and obviously quite a, a well-knit community. It has become, you know, all communities build themselves around activists and leaders. So there are a few people in the town who uh, really do, you know, 
pull up, roll up their sleeves and get things done. And we're all immensely grateful to them for doing that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, nobody, there is, there's very, very little tension in the town. And, and I think people have got the politics right, you know, in a small town, these things can get out of hand and it doesn't happen in Stanford, not that I've seen anyway. Well, yeah, because there certainly has been some tension a little way along the coast at Hermanus in the past. Um, but one of the, the stories of people of note is that we listen to music of your choice. And perhaps if we listen to your first piece of music, which is Ray Conniff, Love is a Many Splendid Thing, uh, you can tell us a bit about where you came from originally. But let's listen to some music. Now, this is Ray Conniff, Love is a Many Splendid Thing. That was Ray Conniff performing Love is a Many Splendid Thing, the choice of Peter Bruce, who's my guest in People of Note. Peter, perhaps before we hear about your earlier origins, perhaps you can just tell our listeners who you are and what you are. I'm the son of a building contractor who who, who became a failed architectural student um, after matriculating. And after failing to become an architect, I fell into journalism. Um, I was in Durban at the University of Natal. And my sister was married to a very well-known journalist called Donald Woods, my sister Wendy. And um, Donald was one of my early and consistent sort of life heroes. And I missed him desperately now that he's been gone all these years. But um, uh, I decided that I would um, apply to become a journalist. So I, I dropped out of university, lay down on my um, bed at my digs in Durban. Um, and it was round about the time that um, all the president's men had come out and he'd seen these wonderful pictures, wonderful movie about how, you know, two enterprising journalists brought down a, a pretty toxic president in Richard Nixon. And I was full of, you know, enthusiasm for reporting and journalism. And, and I got a job. There was a knock at my door one day and there was a reporter there saying, I can't remember her name. And she said, the the news editor, Godfrey King, would like to meet you. So I went down and, and I got a job as a sort of beat reporter uh, doing routine things. I had to drive around Durban every morning in the company VW with a radio and collect the statistics of the night before from hospitals and fire stations and morgues and, uh, and the harbour. And uh, they would go into a, a daily report for the Mercury. Um, but I'd grown up in Amtata. My dad was a building contractor in Amtata. His father before him was a building contractor in Amtata. The, his grandfather was a wheelwright in Butterworth in Transkei. Um, I went to Amtata High School, and we had my parents were prosperous. You know, they um, they weren't the only builders in town, but he was the, the, the it was the biggest uh, firm, and uh, they were both very musical. My both my parents played the piano extremely well. My father particularly could play anything. Um, and so the house was always full of the latest uh, music. Some, you know, it was old-fashioned. I didn't realize that at the time. I thought it was um, all fascinating. And the Ray Conniff that you've just, you've just heard, I, I can almost see the sleeve of the album. It was in a big Blaupunkt radio come turntable come record stand that um, was the sort of main feature of the, of, the, of the lounge, as we used to call it. And my mum absolutely loved 
all the Ray Connors and the Trini Lopez and uh, all of those um, sort of hip people of the the time, and she would play she would play them a lot. Yeah, well, I I remember. I think we were of a similar vintage, and my mother was a great lover of Ray Conniff also, and Julius Katchen was another one I seem to remember the LPs or records of Julius Katchen. Yeah. But uh, obviously you were beginning to build a different sort of dream while you were in Durban. But one of the pieces that you've associated with your home in Umtata is Louis Armstrong, A Kiss to Build a Dream On. That was Louis Armstrong, the famous piece, A Kiss to Build a Dream On, the choice of Peter Bruce, who's my guest in People of Note. And he was talking about his early life in Umtata. Uh, but then having... Having failed at, uh, well, not failed, but having given up on architecture, uh, you then started as a sort of, what I suppose we'd call it a cub reporter, would we? Yeah. So, I mean, just to finish the, 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 the Kiss to Build a Dream and was something I clearly remember my father playing on both the piano and his newly acquired Lowry organ. <laughs> we didn't quite stretch to a Hammond, um, but the Lowry was very good. But what happened was that, you know, my dad, Harold, wanted um, uh, me to follow in his footsteps in the company, in the, in the family business and, 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 and as a building contractor. Um, and I tried my best and I failed, basically. I mean, I was no good at maths required for architecture and I tried my hand at quantity surveying and didn't do very well at that either. So, yes, I went into... I spent a year um, in 1974 in at the Mercury, and then I, um, through both the intervention of uh, my brother-in-law Donald Woods and my dad, um, they persuaded and myself really they persuaded me to go back and get a degree, anything really. So I went to Grahamstown to Rhodes uh, and did a degree, which was new in those days, in journalism which I don't really advise people to do anymore these days. I think far better to do English or history or, you know, broaden your broaden yourself a little bit. Um, but um, I, I got it and I had great fun and um, uh, university, you know, university sort of changed my life in a way and, and it, it opened my eyes to what was happening in the country. Um, and yeah, it was a very important period for me. And and I would, um, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But but uh, it's you know my my lifelong friends that were made at university, yeah. not schools somehow. And it's interesting that you moved from what must have been a small uh, community in Umtata to a small community in uh, Grahamstown, and now you've sort of gone back to your roots by moving to a small community in Stanford. Yeah, it's, it is a weird thing. I I, I actually love big cities. I, I lived in London for a long time. I lived in uh, uh, Madrid for a very long time as a correspondent for the Financial Times. When I worked in West Germany for the Financial Times, I lived in literally what John le Carre called a small town in Germany, which was Bonn on the, on the Rhine. So, you know, I think what you do in any place is you carve out your place in it. And, uh, and that's where you live. In Johannesburg, I was, you know, I basically lived between my house and the Parkview Shopping Centre, and uh, in Germany, you can, you know, you have your Stamm, your Stamm Kneipe, your 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 pub that you always go to, and I had mine. It was called Gambrinos, I remember. So yeah, I mean, I do like 
I do like, uh, I'm a creature of habit. And um, uh, although I might like to know that I'm in a big city, I would tend to use only a very small part of it. Now, uh, a lot of your early choices uh, of music are people like Scott Joplin or Nat King Cole. And your next choice is actually Nat King Cole, one of the great voices, The Very Thought of You. That was the wonderful voice of Nat King Cole, The Very Thought of You, the choice of Peter Bruce, who's my guest in People of Note. Uh, and I see coming up, did, did you, by the way, ever play a musical instrument? No, well, this is, a, this is my last great regret, you know. So I lived um, and grew up around people who played the piano, and, and my grandfather played the uh, uh, trumpet extremely well and the piano. Um, uh, my grandmother, my mother's mother, also played the piano. And I took lessons, and I'm afraid um, it was just... Um, too much for me. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember whether it was being teased for for, for doing something that was a, you know a, a, a sort of sissy thing to do, or or whether I just didn't like the piano teacher. But I didn't. I I just it I didn't play. Click. I was uncoordinated. Yeah. It, it, it was difficult for me to play chords with my left hand and 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 it was tunes with my right. I just I never got it. And it made me miserable. But maybe you, um, maybe you played rugby or something. I mean, you're quite a big guy. I seem to remember. Yeah, I, I played. I played sport at school. I mean, you were in terrible trouble if you didn't. I played first team rugby and first team cricket on and off, and tennis and athletics and all of those sorts of things. So, I had a very happy childhood in Amtata. And you know, the um, uh, Nat King Cole once again just very redolent of my home and, and the sounds that I would hear when I walked into the house from school or from a you know an afternoon's play outside. Yeah. Um, the Blaupunkt the radio did sterling service for <laughs> almost my entire childhood, actually. Yeah. But obviously um, you, you were quite close to your sister, Wendy, also, and she was quite a good pianist. Wendy was a fabulous pianist, and, and she played... She played um, concerts uh, on, on occasion, and she played with a guy who you may have heard called Bruce Gardner. Yes, um, definitely. Who um, and they were they were very good friends, and Bruce lived in East London, um, and uh, um, is still alive. Uh, um, I, he played at a memorial for my dad when he died two years ago, and it was just amazing to see him, and amazing to. To listen to him and very emotional. Yeah. Um, but Wendy was older than I, I was, and she was ten years, eleven years older than I was, and she, she and Donald uh, courted for a while, and then got married and and, um, and moved to East London, and he was about to go on to this great career, and of course we all know that you know he ended up befriending Steve Biko, and that led uh, to. Um, a great friendship and a, and, a, and a movie and books and and um, the departure ultimately very sadly of Donald and his entire family from from South Africa after Steve was killed in custody yeah. by the police. Um, but but the house in East London during that time um, and you know I can I can Steve just a quick word about him. He was like a um, 
uh, I don't know what, 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 the, what the word is, it was like a ghost almost. He would just appear in doorways. And I clearly remember him once appearing in, in, under an archway in the woods house. Um, and it, uh, I'm sure Wendy wasn't playing the song that we are going to play right now when he did. But um, he, he became a fixture in, 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 in the house. Well, he, I'm sure he only you know, used it when he needed to, but, but um, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful time to be alive in a way um, because I was discovering so many things and so many people that I didn't know. Um, and I certainly know that Wendy and Donald were as well. And here's a piece to, to remind you of that time. This is the Maple Leaf Rag. By Scott Joplin. That was the famous Maple Leaf Rag by Scott Joplin, the choice of Peter Bruce, my guest on People of Note. And we were talking about Steve Biko and those uh, times uh, when he was, uh, Donald Woods was editor of the Daily Dispatch, I seem to remember. That's right, yeah. Um, uh, and Don the reason, part of the reason that I wanted to become a journalist is that Donald seemed to lead an entirely charmed life. You know, he he played, he played golf very well. He um, he he played the piano brilliantly. Um, he was an absolutely excellent chess player. Um, uh, the only thing he did wrong was smoke too much, and he smoked an enormous amount of cigarettes. Um, uh, but he, you know, you'd come come home and and uh, either sit down and well, Wendy mainly was the great lover, as I recall, of of ragtime and. It was she, I think, who found Scott Joplin first, and she could play all of the rags that he composed. And he was, I don't know whether you like the ragtime stuff, but it's absolutely wonderful. And I know that, I know that I'm speaking to the, you know, the top conductor in the country when talking to you. So you, you may already have had the pleasure of conducting a, um, a, a piece of ragtime, but I can't imagine how. I can't imagine that it's very easy. It seems to be an incredibly complex and complicated and joyful thing, certainly to play and joyful thing to listen to. Yeah. Uh, we, funny enough, we do have an orchestral version of um, The Entertainer, which we play wow. fairly regularly. And it's actually, it's not difficult to play, funny enough. Those rhythms are very distinctive and the musicians yes. all know them. So they, they latch onto them quite quickly. But another yeah. of the pieces uh, that's come up uh, that you've chosen because of Donald and Wendy was Rhapsody in Blue. Well, and yeah, the Gershwin was the great, you know, Gersh George Gershwin was, I think, the, the, the Wendy's greatest gift to me. I mean, or their greatest gift to me. Just introducing me to that, that song, it still moves me. I cannot, if I hear the beginning of Rhapsody in Blue, I stand still and listen to the whole thing. I absolutely love this music and i don't know how you know i can't imagine what it would be like to uh, to even conceive of something like that how do what genius is it that creates this in your mind yeah um well and i won't tell you the story of how how it all happened well you may know the story of how it began but it's it's uh, quite a long story about uh, seeing a notice in the newspaper about the concert about to happen and so in it was written at white heat uh, and great speed. Good guy. Yeah, but the version that uh, you wanted to hear was featuring Leonard Bernstein. Also, we can't play the whole thing because it's a bit long. 
But here is a yes. part. Here's a part of Rhapsody in Blue by Leonard it, with Leonard Bernstein. What I like he played the piano and conducted the orchestra, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. And that's the version we've got here. It's just a part of it. Here it yeah. comes. That was part of Rhapsody in Blue, a recording made in 1976 uh, by Leonard Bernstein, probably with the New York Philharmonic, I would think. But that's about the time, 76, um, when you were, what, in London, I guess? Well, no, well, 76, to be exact, was, was, you know, the year of the great uprising in, in Soweto and of the youth and, 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 and left, led to um, Donald's, uh, well, Steve's eventual death and Donald's escape from the country, uh, the children and Wendy following him to London. I got to London in 1978, and um, uh, and by then, you know, it um, uh, life was a bit more complicated. Uh, it was interesting. I had to find a job. Um, uh, I was living with Wendy and Donald and the and the five children at the time, uh, and I had to go out and find work. And I I started. Um, sub-editing on uh, um, weekly newspapers in North London, the North London Weekly Herald, I'll never forget it, um, and created a sort of a line for uh, about a dozen other South Africans to come through and on their way to Fleet Street. Um, I, then, I then started getting shifts on what was called the Evening News, which no longer exists, but it was one of two evening papers in London, and it had 17 editions a day. And we had to start work at four o'clock in the morning. Um, and it was quite an extraordinary um, experience for me as a journalist in terms of accuracy and speed and and just how demanding, you know, the newspaper work was as opposed to, um, say, working online or writing for, writing for the internet now. I mean, I would be given uh, a story of a, maybe a thousand words written by some hardworking reporter. And I'd be told by the um, uh, production editor or the chief sub-editor sitting at the top of the table to make a 17-word photo, photo caption out of it. <laughs> and I'd be given the photograph as well. So it was, that, was, that, was really, that was really demanding because if he, did, if he didn't like the caption, he didn't only tell you, but he told the whole floor. Um, it, was, it was a rough and tumble... And it taught me, you know, it toughened you up um, uh, for what was to come because uh, print journalism was and remains um, it's rather like test cricket. You know, it's the purest form of it, in my view. And it's much more demanding um, than, uh, you know, the one-day game or whatever yeah. one might like to call the internet. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe we should just talk about that for a moment because you've seen the sort of rise and, not the rise and fall, but the rise and demise, if you like, of print media. Uh, yeah. Newspapers are just a shadow of what they used to be. The, certainly, South African newspapers are, and it's, and it's a real pity, and that's largely, I'm afraid, because the owners have let them become so. If you look at the New York Times or the... Uh, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, The Times in London, they are robust and strong print products. Um, and that was because the, uh, their owners quickly decided to 
put them behind paywalls and not give their content away for free, which is what has happened in this country. Yeah. And once you've given once something away for free once, it's very hard to start charging for it. And uh, be- largely because of that, uh, they've run out of revenue, you know, and the, and the, the revenues just aren't there any longer to um, uh, to support the kind of staff you need to produce a quality newspaper. In it. And it's a it's a terrible shame. I'm glad I'm not in Joburg because I, you know the newspapers arrive here late uh, if they arrive at all in Stanford, and uh, you know quite frankly I'm 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 happier not to see them. Yeah. I mean, I did think at one stage that I could not get out of bed without having first held some newsprint in my hands, but I, I can actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. I try. I try. I try to forget it, and then I'm always sort of pulled back by a copy of something I yeah. pick up. You're still writing for various publications. Yes, I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm very grateful to them. I, mean, I write a, a column for the Sunday Times every week. I write a column for Business Day. I was editor of Business Day for 14 years, um, and and I and I've been writing a, a column for the Financial Mail, which I was also editor of, um, and that was for about four years. Um, but I've just changed the column for the Financial Mail to a podcast, rather like this, uh, although there's no music attached to it. And I'm really enjoying it because you've got all sort of sort of people to help you. You know, you, you get to have a great conversation with somebody. Yeah. And somebody else, you know, somebody else makes it sound fantastic and puts music in and and um, tops and tails it, and uh, it it takes much less time and uh, is much more fun. But yeah, I still I, I'm still writing. I'm still enjoying it. I, there's a lot to write about. There's a lot of. Um, you know, there's, you, you can see so many trains coming down so many tunnels um, in South Africa that I, um, I, would be, I would be very, very hard-pressed not to, you know, uh, write about um, – well, I'd be very hard-pressed to ignore them, put it that yeah. way. Uh, there's so much going wrong here. Yeah. Um, uh, and one wants to be able to point it out, and you just got to try and do it in a in a construct in a way that's constructive. And by constructive, I mean so that you actually have some impact. It's all very well uh, shouting the odds and calling people names, and makes people uh, feel good who might be on the other side. But if you want the government to behave differently, you've got to approach them, you know, yeah. in a in a certain way. So you're still rolling along, which is good. And your next choice, in fact, is the Rolling Stones. And uh, this is called Start Me Up. That was the Rolling Stones with Start Me Up, the choice of Peter Bruce, my guest in People of Note tonight. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Cock. And you can listen to these programs on podcasts uh, from the Monday after their broadcast. If you just go to our website, www.classic1027.co.za, you can just follow the prompts and you will find them all there from past ones as well. And tonight I'm talking to Peter Bruce, who comes started life in Umtata, worked on the uh, Mercury in Durban, and then uh, went up to Johannesburg and started, well, to East London first, and then to Johannesburg and worked on the Financial Mail 
and various places abroad as well. And you mentioned Bonn and uh, Madrid. You spent a lot of time in Madrid, you said. Well, uh, yeah, I spent seven years in Madrid and four years in Bonn. Um, the Financial Times was very um, uh, generous with its postings. and It was a form of diplomatic service, really. Um, so you get posted to... I was posted to Bonn in 1984. Um, and, you know, you, we, we were ridiculously spoiled. I was able to... I, had a, I, I was able to rent a penthouse on the Rhine on the other side of Bonn, looking at Bonn, which is a beautiful city. It wasn't bombed during the war, like Cologne, which is just up the, up the river. Um, and, um, and I could sit out on my, on my penthouse deck and watch, you know, um, all of the, uh, the sort of shipping go by. There was a very large barge, I remember, that used to come past called Pierre Bruce, um, <laughs> which, I, which, I, which I adopted. But it was um, it was a very good time for me, and I and Bonn I really really loved. And you, you know you have to obviously learn the language when you go to these foreign countries, and that's a and that's a scary thing when you don't know them. And and the only way I believe to learn a language is to have no option. Um, and uh, so I threw myself into it, and I learned I learned to to speak German by listening to. To you know, to music or listening to TV shows, and, um, the, the Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stones record we've just played or the, the Start Me Up was it was the resolution of a long-standing um, sort of argument I'd had mas- with myself about from when I was very young. You know, who was better, the Beatles or Elvis? Well, it turned out to be the Stones. <laughs> I think they're the, probably, arguably, the greatest rock band ever, and I've seen them a couple of times. I, I accidentally walked into a Rolling Stones concert in 1969 on, in, in Hyde Park in London uh, when Brian Jones was still alive. And um, uh, I was very far away and I didn't really know what was going on. Obviously, I could hear the music and I knew who it was. Um, but I was still a schoolboy and completely you know, blown away by it. But I saw them later on. I can't quite remember where. It might have been in, it might have been in Madrid. Yeah. Um, they're a great band. That's a, and always a fantastic concert. And while you were abroad, did you go to any classical music concerts? Because I see you've chosen some Beethoven and some Tarega. I didn't um, go out of my way to listen to uh, any classical music. I'd rather grown up with it. But Bonn, of course, was where Beethoven lived. And his house, um, his house had been beautifully maintained, as could only happen in Germany. Um, and... It just reminded me when I was doing the list, you know, I'd sort of hum things to myself and, and bits of bits of symphonies or, or music that you like. You know, if, if I played them to my kids, they would they'd recognize the advert it came from. But it found, I, I discovered that the, 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 so on balance, most of the things that I like to hum to myself sometimes were written by Ludwig van Beethoven and... and uh, so I thought, well, you know, we could put a couple of them together if you were able to do that. Um, uh, it would be it would be great. I mean, the the um, uh, the choral version of um, his Ode to Joy, which is the Ninth Symphony, I think it's the that's correct um, fourth fourth movement. Um, also, uh, uh, I think Bernstein has conducted 
the Berlin Philharmonic um, or the uh, playing that. But he, he that and the it's a wonderful slow dirge almost in the seventh symphony, the second movement. And I, I, I know them in my brain and they're just planted there, you know, and I, every time I want to find them, I struggle and I have to, I have to sort of call people and ask and then hum things over the telephone and say, what, who, where do I find this again? Where do I find this? So it was, it was, it, he's just part of somehow Beethoven is part of my story uh, in an oblique sort of way, partly because I've been to his house, I suppose, yeah. and partly because some of the things he wrote, some of the music he wrote was just, was just, is just achingly beautiful. Well, I've I found the final section of the um, Ninth Symphony, the where from where the choir sing the big tune, and that's what we're yeah. going to hear now. From it's Leonard Bernstein, and it's recorded in Berlin. It's um, a section of the final movement of the Ninth Symphony. That was Leonard Bernstein uh, performing with uh, a group in Berlin, probably the Berlin Philharmonic, and it was part of the famous Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy, which also forms the European Union national anthem. A very optimistic song for a German for a German <laughs> poet. <laughs> yes, um, Schiller's Ode to Joy. Uh, what a great piece, though. We performed it. Funny enough. The last piece that I performed before lockdown was the Ninth Symphony. Um, really, and and it, I I almost feel it should be the first piece we perform when we open up again. Yeah, Alle Menschen werden Brüden. Yeah, uh, wonderful, wonderful piece, very stirring, and and it resonates with the Germans. They perform it, you know, regularly every year, and yeah. in Japan it's like Handel's Messiah. They perform it regularly yeah. there too. Yeah. Now you're a sort of, in a way, you're a, a disruptor. This is a sort of new, new term for people—a disruptor. Do you do you see yourself as a disruptor? Well, I try not to. You know, I, I don't like being told what to do, and I don't like fitting in. I never have, uh, and I don't like really. I'm not a team player, so I've always struggled um, with authority. So I don't, you know, disrupting the, the disruptors tend to be regarded as people who have done something meritorious and um, have given the world a new way of looking at things. And I don't know that I've been able to do that. I mean, I've tried my hardest when I was a newspaper editor to fight off the forces of simplification and cost-cutting and... Um, uh, and degradation of of a craft that I hold very dear to m my heart, um, and it was awful working with managers who didn't care, yeah, um, and shareholders who didn't care, and for as long as I was the editor of Business Day, I'm satisfied, reasonably satisfied, that I produced a newspaper that you could land in Johannesburg from London or New York or wherever. And pick it up and say, "Hey, this is a serious country." Yeah, and um, uh, that's why I got up and went to work every morning for those fourteen years. I loved it. I mean, I it's the best job you I've ever had, um, and it was an absolute privilege to be the editor of Business Day and of the Financial Mail. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, so I don't know that I'm a disruptor. I'm just badly behaved. <laughs> 
because one of the things you you said in in one of your emails to me was that you you sort of felt instinctively drawn to the Spaniards because of their their anarchism and romanticism. Yeah, no, they were they you know and they were they they are complete anarchists. I mean, just a little brief anecdote: when they joined the EU, so this is after Franco dies, um, they joined the EU and gradually. You, you get more and more integrated, you know, when you join the European Union. And came the moment when they had to um, uh, have their cars regularly roadworthied. And almost instantly, a um, an industry grew up where you could rent parts for your cars for the roadworthy test and, and then give them back once you passed the roadworthy <laughs> and they'd put your old parts back on, your brake pads that didn't work and and um, whatever it might be. Yeah. And they are just, you know, they're just lovely, the Spanish. I mean, South Africa, if, you, if South Africans could speak Spanish, they'd see a lot of themselves in it, in, in, in them. Um, I felt very at home in Madrid, and I could live there again tomorrow in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, and I, the country itself was fantastic. The wine was lovely. The sea, the Mediterranean is still the best piece of ocean, I think on the planet lovely and warm no no waves you know you just yeah. it just swirls around you it's gorgeous so yeah. i i love the spaniard and i love their approach to life you know i mean the siesta was still very much a thing in those days and so if we were writing i was writing for the financial times from there so we had an hour uh, we were an hour ahead um and our lunches would last then from about one o'clock until five o'clock so by the time you got back at five o'clock, you weren't in any state to produce um, anything particularly thoughtful. Um, and fortunately, Spanish seemed to the Spaniards seemed to get their news out of the way early and in the day. So I never, I never got found out. <laughs> well, here's some memories of the Alhambra. This is music by yeah. Andres Targa, played by Paco de Lucia. That was Recuerdos del Alhambra by Andres Targa. The guitarist was Paco de Lucia, and that was chosen by Peter Bruce, who's my guest in People of Note. Just a quick thing about the Alhambra. As you leave um, Granada to go down to the coast, you pass, you, you go up a hill and you pass a, uh, a sign saying, uh, with the name, um, uh, El Ultimo Respiro del Morro. The last, the Moors' last sigh, and it was in recognition of the fact that when the Moors were chased out of Spain by the Christians, the Catholics, uh, they turned at this particular spot to look down at Granada, the capital and the palace that um, that they had built, um, and wept it, you know, shed a tear, and then and then and then moved. And we forget, you know, in, in how. Um, how wonderfully those civilizations existed back in the in in the tenth, eleventh, twelfth, ninth centuries. Yeah. The Moors ruled the Moors ruled Spain for seven hundred years. And and they and they did it with with the Jews um as as a unit, you know, as a team. Uh, the Moors owned the place and the Jews ran it or administered it. It is quite extraordinary, yeah. and, and it, you know, to look at Arab and Jewish relations now, you'd think that it never happened. But it just reminds you that you're sort of just we're just a blot 
in time, you know. Yeah, and of course, they both of those groups left their imprint on the music of Spain, uh, and yeah. certainly on the architecture, which uh, has fantastic yeah. Moorish well, elements I mean, to it. Yeah, and, yeah, and Paco de Lucia. I don't know. For me, is the greatest guitarist ever. I mean, he. I, I, I never saw him play, but to do be able to do what he can do with his fingers and hands yeah. is uh, it's just amazing just yeah. indescribably cool. and now we're coming uh, a, a little more up to date with your next choice of music which is Wynton Marsalis and uh, mm. Eric Clapton and this was to yeah. do with uh, that redoubtable lady Molly Blackburn well in, in, in tangentially so I'm I married um, a second time to um, uh, Robin Chalmers, whose mother, Judy Chalmers, um, grew up in Port Elizabeth and was Molly Blackburn's sister and was in the same car with Molly when um, Molly's fatal accident and unexplained accident occurred. As you know, she was a, she was a fierce activist uh, in the Black Sash, along with Judy, uh, at the time, the, the late 80s. And I think Molly's funeral in PE is still the biggest funeral in that town has ever had. I see pictures of it every now and again. There must have been 100,000 people there. Um, uh, almost entirely come in from the townships in, in honor of the work that she, appreciation of the work that she had tried to do. Um, so we see a lot of Judy, who's a wonderful woman. Um, and she came up to... Uh, uh, Johannesburg a couple of years ago and I was I tried to sort of put some music together thinking that I should play you know she put together a playlist for an older lady and she surprised me by being entirely bored with what I was playing her and said do you have any Winston Marcellus I said I've never heard of him what does he do he said she directed me to um, to this particular song uh, and I um I didn't know what it was for the first few minutes because I'm a real Clapton fan. Um, and it took it a while for it to resolve into something that I recognized it. But uh, uh, it was a great collaboration and, and, and I owe it all to, to Judy Chalmers. Here it is, Layla, Wynton Marsalis and Eric Clapton. That was Layla featuring Wynton Marsalis and Eric Clapton. Like you, Peter, although I didn't stay away as long as you did, I was away for eight years. Um, yeah. and, and then, but I must say that after eight years, I was 100% ready to come back home. I really missed South Africa. And I think you probably suffered some of those same pangs because I, I get the feeling that you're a sort of a deep South African. You love this place. Absolutely. It, it, um, I can't not live here. You know, I cannot imagine. I think about it sometimes because I, 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 I've got a lot of friends. I've spent 20 years out of the country. And I've got friends that I miss in Germany and Spain and the UK. Um, but I can't really imagine ever living there again um, uh, in any serious and permanent way. You know, I mean, yeah. it's nice to visit. And, I, and I'm, I'm moved. You know, South Africa is such a disaster, uh, and at the same time, it's it's so uplifting. I mean, people here are so brave and courageous and strong. Um, 
it's you know we are we're a hundred years behind the rest of the world, maybe two hundred years behind the rest of the world still. Some of our people live in true live are living medieval lives, um, and you know watching them rise and and um, watching the possibility of success and prosperity play out and then disappear and play out again and then vanish again is 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 completely sort of i'm transfixed by it i cannot i cannot not be here yeah um well and uh, and just uh, facing every day is like a sort of challenge for many people it's too terrible and we you know it's very hard to explain south africa to a visitor who comes here particularly if they're of a sensitive nature um because you get asked how you can live here. You know, I drove, I drove from Stanford to Somerset West yesterday, next to past the most disgraceful um, uh, urbanizations, if you wanted to call them. You know, tin shacks, um, uh, and near Krabo, and then down at the bottom of Solari's Pass again. And I, you know, we have to, we have to. We've got to fix it somehow, you know. We need to hold. We need to make. We need to make sure that we hold the government of the day, whatever it may be, to account so that they fix it. Uh, and 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 sadly, what we have is is a system now where there's only one party in contention to run the country, um, and it doesn't doing it a very good job of it at all. Yeah, it's it. It's a, it's it 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 is at war with itself, and it's almost at war with its own people, and um, it won't last forever. Uh, and something else will happen to break to break the hold uh, that it has. But it's not in prospect anytime soon. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, one of the areas that you must have passed quite close to on your way to Cape Town was Mannenberg, and that's uh, your next choice with as he was then, Dollar Brand. That was the famous uh, recording by Dollar Brand, as he then was, Abdullah Ibrahim of Mannenberg. The choice of Peter Bruce, who's my guest in People of Note. Peter was uh, editor of newspapers. He was a reporter in Europe and uh, ended up here with the Business Day uh, financial newspaper. And uh, you also had other causes that you sort of supported because where I first came across you I think was when you were looking after well not looking after but we the annual uh, business and arts uh, awards were done uh, with business day as a media partner and I remember with meeting Barca. you there yeah yeah Barca. yeah and that was once again something that you know we're forced to walk away from because we weren't making enough money out of it and we weren't losing any money but but managers who you know get tired of these things um, simply say eventually, well, no, you know we not we made a million rand out of uh, the 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 business and the arts supplement last year. We're only making six hundred thousand now. It's not it's not worth it. And and you know you don't you don't win every battle. Yeah. Um, and and you know I loved the Barca Awards. I mean, because they were great. They got companies involved, and it was a night of companies sort of 
you know, showing off the things that they were doing in their communities or for communities. And it was, it was terrific. And we used to have lovely events and lovely evenings and very good for business day. And, and, uh, and very good and for the all, arts too. Well, this was the point. I mean, yeah. and you know, I can't, I don't know what has happened, but these things only happen because people fight for them to happen. You know, Michelle constant and I, um, kept that thing alive for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, or kept that partnership alive for 10 years. And it's just exhausting. Yeah. Um, uh, because, because the people who were given ownership, who are able to afford um, to buy newspaper companies, um, uh, tend not to be publishers. They don't have it in their hearts. They're just another business that, uh, you know, you can squeeze a few bucks out of. It makes me so cross to think about yeah. it. Um, I worked for I worked for a long as I say for a long time for the Financial Times, and it was run by a company called Pearson, and Pearson PLC was the most wonderful owner. And there was a time in the 1980s where there was a strike at the FT, and and it was caused over a wage negotiation that Pearson had botched, and the strike went on for a long time. It was about about two months which is a long time for a daily newspaper to be off the streets. And on the day that the paper came back, the presses broke. So we were only able to produce half the number of papers that we were normally able to produce. And in the paper, there was an article very critical of Pearson. And they were so committed to the newspaper and freedom of speech that they ordered for the next day an even bigger newspaper to, that would that would be able to reprint the article that a lot of people hadn't got to see uh, the day before, which was very critical of them. And I can't imagine anybody who owns a newspaper in South Africa now doing the same thing. Yeah. Well, your your second to last choice is Leonard Cohen. Uh, yeah. And and this, I mean, a couple of, he died a couple of years ago, and we certainly paid tribute yeah. to him in several concerts. Very special performer. Yeah. I saw him. I saw him very close up. Um, uh, in Madrid, and easily the sexiest man alive. I just adored Leonard Cohen, um, and I think, um, yeah, you know, it was a, just a terrible loss. His songs were thoughtful, and 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 there was a bit of, I'm sure, poetic trickery in them. And he knew how to, you know, tug a heartstring. Yeah. Um, but he had a lovely manner about him, and 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 you know he would dress. I remember he was dressed when I saw him. He was thin as a rake, and he had a black t-shirt on and a grey suit. And I, I just wish I could carry that off. You know, it was just, it was the most, uh, it was just a fascinating and a lovely, lovely concert, a lovely, lovely time uh, that evening. I'll never forget it. And I, Robin, and I go to Hydra in Greece. Uh, every year, where well, we have been up until uh, the coronavirus got in the way, but um, Hydra was where he um, he lived with the famous Marianne, his Norwegian lover, um, to whom he sang "So Long, Marianne." Eventually, and the house they're still in the Cohen family, still up there. And I I make every now and again a pilgrimage up the hill. It's quite a steep climb to get to it. Um, but uh, 
uh, it's my little my little homage to Leonard Cohen. I I just he is uh, you know um, if I had to take one song with one singer with me to a desert island, it would have been it would be his music. Well, and you've chosen anthem. This was from a live concert in London. It's Leonard Cohen. That was Leonard Cohen anthem from a concert called Live in London, the choice of Peter Bruce. And we're fast coming towards the end of the program now, and we've got uh, one more choice of music, which is from the soundtrack of Cry Freedom, which is the film about your brother-in-law, Donald Woods, and his relationship with Steve Biko. Um, and and when, we, when you emailed me, you said that this was uh, when you heard you know, this uh, song and saw the movie, you knew you'd be coming home. Yeah. Uh, and it's a very powerful song. It's it's in Kosi Sikeleli Africa, which has become our national anthem in combination with um, uh, the old uh, um, distem, yeah. uh, a sort yeah. of uh, medley of two tunes, but it remains a very, very powerful song. Yeah, this is, a, this is, the, this is the pure version of Nkosi Sikeleli. Yes. There's no... Uh, English or Afrikaans in it, and it's topped and tailed by some of the most haunting um, sounds. It would, we forget, you know, that Crown Freedom won an Oscar for this uh, soundtrack. Um, uh, and it's easily the best version of Nkosi Sikilela ever, in my view. And if you talk to me afterwards, um, over you. Uh, I, I shall probably be in tears, so um, give me a moment <laughs> when you're finished. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to play out with that, actually, so you won't have to uh, have your tears on air. Yeah. The making of the movie, I wasn't part of it, but I heard all about it as it was going along, and Donald and Wendy and I um, were at the funeral um, in King Williamstown after Steve died, and it was the, it was the most incredible awakening for me to watch how people could lose something as precious as he was and behave themselves with as much grace and dignity as that crowd did. It was quite a remarkable experience. And there weren't many white people in the stadium. Um, and the police stopped a lot of people, a lot of buses from getting there, but it was full nonetheless. But it was a, it was an event of, just staggering anguish and beauty and uh, meaning. That was from the soundtrack of the film Cry Freedom, called The Funeral. And that's where, sadly, we have to end this interview. It's been a fantastic two hours that we've spent with Peter Bruce. And I just want to say thank you, Peter, for sharing your time with us and telling us what you've told us. Uh, strong messages about... Uh, people choosing careers and fighting for what they believe in and and enjoying life while you do it. So thank you very much indeed for that. And thank we look you. forward to hearing more from Stanford in the Western Cape in due course. You, many thanks. You were, thank you for making me do this. It really, it really made me th think about my life a little bit, and, and uh, that's no bad thing. We, we, we forget what our great reward is, you know, and that's just simply to be alive. And that's where we must end People of Note tonight. We thank you at home for listening. Uh, and if 
you want to hear this on a podcast, then you just go uh, anytime you want to the Classic 1027 website, www.classic1027.co.za, and just follow the prompts. But from all of us here at Classic 1027 and from Peter Bruce in the Western Cape, we say thanks for listening, and until next time, from all of us, a very good night.